Welcome to episode 84 of the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new Star Trek. Today it's season three, episode five of Star Trek Lower Decks Reflections. I'm Michael Merrick, the media professor. And I'm Rodney Cup, the philosophy professor. And you can follow us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. And to listen on the web or subscribe your app to the podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. So our first main order of business is a brief summary of this week's episode. And with that summary, here is Dr. Rodney Cup. All right. So the Cerritos has returned to Tolgana 4, and Mariner and Boimler have been ordered to staff the Starfleet recruitment booth at a job fair outside the Federation embassy. Naturally, Mariner complains about the assignment, but Ransom threatens her with a transfer to Starbase 80 if she gets out of line. While they are there, they are harassed and provoked by other recruiters who don't like Starfleet. And when an outpost scientist throws Boimler's rank pip on the ground and it gets stepped on, Boimler loses it and goes on a rampage. He defends Starfleet to its critics and criticizes them in return. Bold Boimler's confidence creates interest in the Starfleet recruitment booth and they leave with a pad full of contact info. And Boimler spends his first night in the brig, but Ransom is impressed with the way he defended Starfleet. Mariner is contacted by an archaeologist she met at the job fair who offers her a job if she ever decides she is fed up with Starfleet bureaucracy. Meanwhile, Rutherford hasn't been sleeping lately because he's been having nightmares. And Tendi purges his memory cache but his implant malfunctions, imagine that, and he falls into a coma. He discovers that he is sharing his brain with a younger version of himself who has been trying to take control of his body by causing his implant to malfunction. Only one of them can survive the coma, so they agree to race their own ships through the neutral zone, and the winner gets to keep the body. Now, all of this is occurring in Rutherford's mindscape, however. During the race, a Romulan warship appears and attacks them. Rutherford brought Mariner, Boimler, and Tendi along. And with their help, he dodges the Romulan attacks, but young Rutherford does not. Before young Rutherford's ship is destroyed, they beam him aboard. And before he dies in old Rutherford's arms, he reveals that Rutherford's implant was part of some kind of cover-up. And Rutherford wakes up from his coma, and he is fine. And that's the episode. Okay, thank you for that summary. As usual, we'll get around to philosophy and themes and morals to the story in a little bit. But first, we just want to talk about some of the things we noticed in the episode. And uh, if I can start, Rodney, the A-plot of this episode gives us a lot more of Rutherford's backstory. It's been hinted at before, but now we know more, and... The mystery is more clear. The answers aren't more clear, but mm -hmm. the scope of the mystery is more clear. It was fun that when Tendi cleared Rutherford's buffer and encouraged him to sleep, she says that he would wake up and feel like a new man. And of course, he did. And he does, yeah. There have been a lot of stories over the years, and not just in Star Trek, of one way or the other, two people in one body. Sometimes it's uh, intentional, like the Trill symbionts in Star Trek. 
sometimes not, like the gold in Stargate. Yeah, I'm just thinking of a few episodes here. The original series, they had Turnabout Intruder. And The Next Generation, they had The Schizoid Man, which I just watched recently. And that's just to name a few. And well beyond Star Trek, there have been all kinds of stories and books in this general subject of two people in one body. Uh, Stories about criminals who've been mind wiped and a new identity installed. But then the bad guy comes creeping back to try to take over again. Or sometimes it's the good guy is the one who's suppressed, like in The Winter Soldier. And then, of course, you have the two parts of Kirk's personality that are divided in The Enemy Within. In the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies, I don't think it was in the book, but remember Gollum talking to himself, one who was essentially good Gollum, the other bad. So it's a really common image in in fiction. And if you look at the world today, it really seems like a lot of people do allow their their base instincts to rule their lives, allowing themselves to be ruled by hate, the the, the bad part of their personality having dominance. Yeah. And anybody who's been on the internet uh, knows that social media is just making this worse. So it's not really surprising that this idea has had fertile ground for fiction writers. Now, uh, in this case, the Rutherford we know who we are calling um, old or older Rutherford, he's a pretty good guy, really. He's easygoing, slow to anger, pretty good at what he does. He enjoys what he does. And his alter ego, who we're calling young Rutherford, is more brash. He breaks the law. And in a lot of ways, he's just not as likable. He's got a little bit more abrasive personality. Although it's interesting, I would note that young Rutherford apparently is fair to his alter ego in laying out the race course. He specifically says, I've laid it out to be fair. You know, it's challenging, certainly, but laid it out to be fair. That's right. I want to talk a little bit more about this when we get to the philosophy part of the podcast. But let's talk about some other things first, too. I was confused for a while. I had to watch more than once to figure out what part of the Rutherford plot story was real. And when I say real in the context of the episode and what was only in his mind. Mm. And here's what I concluded. The glitch that allows young Rutherford to take over. That's when we first see the red eyepiece. That really happens. And the scene with him going and talking to Tendi, that happens. Remember, Tendi calls for a medical team, but then we see Rutherford doing other stuff. And you have to look carefully, but Rutherford essentially leaves after Tendi calls for the medical team. And we see a really brief scene down the hallway of Tendi, Tana, and Shax searching for him. Mm -hmm. Then he beams to the captain's yacht. Shax finds him there and calls for a medical team again. Then after that, I think everything is in Rutherford's mind. Yeah, I think that's how I understood it, too. Yeah. Maybe I wasn't paying enough attention, but it took me more than one watching to figure that out. I did think that the blank white void that the two Rutherfords are in part of the time was interesting. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a cliche for being in the space between life and death. You remember Harry Potter talked to Dumbledore in a mostly white void after Dumbledore died, and then Harry, not sure what Harry's status is. Also, though, Q brought Picard into a white void in Tapestry. That's right. Remember, that's when uh, they were reliving the experience of Picard almost dying when he's impaled by the Nausicaan. 
it is a common image. Yeah, I think there was a white void in the matrix, right? And also the good place. And in fact, in the good place, Janet called that her void. That was what she called it. And of course, the two Rutherfords comment on being in a white void. So the writers are making a bit of fun of themselves, uh, too, for using that. So Mariner and Boimler are back on Tolgana 4. That's the planet they delivered the drunk Klingon General Corrine to in season one. That's right. Uh, I believe this is the first time ever in any Star Trek that we've actually heard about Starfleet recruiting activities like the booth that we have here. Usually uh, when we hear about people joining Starfleet or heading to the Academy, it's almost like a done deal that they didn't want to do anything else, that they didn't need to be recruited. But uh, I mean, it makes sense. Sure. Um, It was interesting that again, in this episode, Mariner and Boimler are kind of switching roles (laughs) with him being the one who eventually goes off the deep end and she's the more conservative one. But remember, she she didn't have anything good to say about recruiting booths. Now, Rodney, I know that you and I have both staffed recruiting booths from <laughs> yes. time to time over the years. Yes. It's not that bad. Is no, it? it's not. I enjoy it, actually. I think it's fun yeah. uh, talking to, uh, you know, high school students and their parents about the college. Yeah, so, what, yeah, that's what that's what college teachers do in the context of, of recruiting. Yeah. One of the things they do. So. You know, Mariner is looking for the worst sometimes. Yeah. You know, yeah which or, uh, Boimler points out. Yeah, that she kind of likes to complain. It's what she does. And about the booth, did you notice the poster of the two Starfleet officers kind of in the background with face holes? So yeah. People, people could assume, have their picture taken in uniform. Yeah. Yeah. I assume that was Kirk and Spock. I think probably so. Yeah. yeah. The, one, the one had very prominent ears that the face would would fit into. I thought that was kind of funny. But you see that, you know, at various tourist attractions and mm-hmm. and things. And from a, a serious sales and marketing perspective, that might help people imagine themselves in that Starfleet role. Mm-hmm. So in this episode, the independent archaeologist guild recruiter, Petra Aberdeen, yeah. is both an annoyance to Mariner and a temptation. That's right. And her independent archaeologist guild kind of reminds us of Picard's occasional girlfriend, Vosh. And Vosh, of course, was more yeah. interested in making money from archaeological artifacts than from science. You know, apparently Petra's the same way. She's steals something from a museum to collect a reward from the Ferengi. So she's in it for the money, too, apparently. Yeah. I'll say something more about that later. Yeah. Can we imagine Mariner in that kind of role? I don't know. I'm not sure that the making money would appeal to her. You know, I think if anything, Mariner would sort of be like Burnham in season three of Discovery, you know, away from Starfleet, but still principled. Maybe. That's, yeah. 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 Mariner would certainly enjoy the the adrenaline that comes from whatever the, <laughs> you know, grabbing the artifact and running away from the boulder, running down the cave or something like that. You know, who knows? So I have a handful of other notes uh, about the episode, uh, actually several, but each is pretty short and sweet. The race uniforms that Rutherford and the others were wearing is the same uniform as in the Voyager episode Drive in which the Delta Flyer gets involved in an alien spaceship race. Hmm. 
So that's where the idea for using the flyer and the uniforms came from. Cool um, uniforms. Yeah. In the coma dream state that Rutherford was in, the younger Rutherford uses the Vulcan remember mind meld technique. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was fun. No reason to believe that he would know how to use the technique, but it was just a, a fun thing for, for the fans. I note that Mariner claims to have a degree in Xeno history. Hmm. Now, she claims all kinds of things, so, you know, don't know. But that would that seems like an interesting choice for her. Note that one of her sales pitches when she's at the booth is discover the undiscovered country. Yeah. And that's funny because we remember the title of the Star Trek VI film. However, that title, Star Trek, the undiscovered country, was taken from Shakespeare. Hamlet is referring to death when he says that it is an undiscovered country who is born, no travelers return. So what Mariner is essentially saying is join Starfleet and die. And die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is funny. Her other um, pitch, uh, prepare yourself for warp 10 excitement. I've read that that comes from the novelization of Star Trek too. Okay. Note that Tendi has a pod plant from Omicron SETI 3 which is what we saw in the original series episode, the Paradise Syndrome. Right. And as long as we're talking about the literary references, that Paradise Syndrome title was taken from an, an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel in the early 20th century. So what I'm wondering is why that particular plant? Why put that in the episode? I'm still wondering about that. It's an Easter egg. It's just an intentional Easter egg. You notice the plant had a dome over it so that when it did spit out the spores, right. it wouldn't get to people. Speaking of plant life, young Rutherford's ship name is Sampaguita, which is a flower. And in fact, it is the national flower of the Philippines. Hmm. I was wondering, I, I mean, they haven't said, but I wonder if Rutherford is intended to be Filipino. Yeah, maybe he is. Maybe he is. I don't know. Just, just a thought. And finally, in this section of the podcast, we've seen before that in the brig uh, on the wall, there's graffiti of a castle that's labeled as Mariner's HQ from the days, mostly season one, I think, that she appeared to like being in the brig. <laughs> and uh, now there is also, that's still there, but there's also graffiti of a house, the standard shape, you know, square with a triangle on top that is Boimler's guest house. <laughs> Yeah, maybe he's going to be doing more time in the brig. That maybe happens when you're bold, when you're bold yeah. more often. All right. Well, let's talk about meaning then. What messages did the writers and producers want us to take away from this episode? What do you think, Michael? Well, the title, Reflections, certainly addresses the way one version of Rutherford appears to the other in the various display reflections and things. But uh, I, it also relates, I think, to the different versions of him we see. And you mm -hmm. might say how they are each a reflection of the other. Because, you know, when you look at a reflection okay. in a mirror, it's the opposite. It's the reversal of what people see when they look at you. Right. Uh, and so in many ways, I think the two versions of Rutherford's are reversals, or maybe you can say reflections of each other. Yeah, it was. I was somewhat surprised. Good point, by the way, but I was somewhat surprised at how different young Rutherford is from old Rutherford. You get this feeling that, you know, young Rutherford 
has this sort of bad boy past or something, yeah. which I was not expecting. Well, I wasn't either. I mean, they explain that the shadowy people that are kind of doing the reprogramming, they in effect say that they've removed the knowledge of whatever the project is they're working on. Yeah. And so the Rutherford, as we know him, is what's left, although they apparently reprogrammed him to think that the implant was voluntary. But yeah. so they sort of explain that. But yeah, I mean, we didn't really have any reason to believe that the younger Rutherford would be a bad boy or uh, not yeah. similar to the one we know today, because, uh, you know, as people get older, typically they are more or less the same person. Now they change over time, but they don't tend to change that much. But, you know, Rodney, the word reflection also means critical thinking. Reflective thinking means critical, critical thinking. Right. Coming to a better understanding about something, spending hmm. the time to think about it. And Rutherford is certainly doing that in this episode as he learns about his past. Mm -hmm. I think Mariner is also trying to figure things out about her future in right. Starfleet. Okay. And I think she's I think she is now spending more time pondering it rather than just her former shoot from the hip type attitudes about things. Visually, we see a lot of reflection in this episode, too. That very first nightmare sequence, we see young Rutherford trying to keep that equipment from exploding. And there is a reflection of his face, not the face with the implant, but just his face in the screen panel as he's, as he's working on it there. Um, so right. visually, it's a theme that they're using, too. Yeah, that surely goes into the title of this episode. And and it was interesting, you know, when you see his reflection there, um, you don't see him with his implant. So that was a, a nice way to begin the episode. Yeah. I do want to go back to that portrayal of two people in one body and look at it from an ethical perspective. I think that psychologists would say that we each have multiple inner voices, some of which are darker than others. We each mm -hmm. have a good side to our personality and probably a dark side. And in most cases, it's the dark side that we tend to keep hidden. We keep suppressed in, in fiction. Sometimes this is portrayed as, as the little cartoon angel on one shoulder and the little cartoon devil on the other shoulder, each talking to us, each trying to bend our ear. But I think the idea is that our duty as intelligent beings is to balance these voices and to follow the one that is most beneficial. And of course, some people do this better than others. The original, the young Rutherford says he was always so angry about everything. Mm -hmm. So he was letting that darker side come out often. And in the story, what essentially the storyline is about is the two Rutherfords decide that they're going to balance their voices or make the choice by testing which of the two voices is the better one. And when I say voices here, they decide that that means being able to build a better race ship because engineering is part of both of their backgrounds. It's one person, but both of their backgrounds. It's not the criteria most of us would pick, but it does seem to work for the two Rutherfords given that importance of, of engineering and it is the way that they have chosen to make a choice between these ethical considerations about who they are, who they want to be, and who you are, who you're supposed to be, who you want to be, is a long-term theme in Star Trek. 
I also can't help but comment on Boimler flying into a rage in this episode. Earlier, he had told Mariner to calm down. Don't listen to them. But That's right. as you told us in the summary, a critic grabs his rank insignia pip, throws it on the ground. And I'm not sure, but somebody at least tromps on it. And yeah. It looked like it was deliberately tromping on it. And now ethically, he shouldn't have let that cause his temper to explode. But you think about it, insignia are symbols to him and to him. And I think probably to many Starfleet officers, they are important symbols, like there are symbols in the various military branches today. These rank insignia are emblematic of who Boimler is. Right now, he's an ensign, but being an ensign is central to who he is. And it's central to how he sees the process of advancing in rank, as he imagines himself doing. You have to be a good ensign before you can start being a good lieutenant and, and move upwards that way. Yeah, and he earned that pip. You know, and for somebody to treat it so disrespectfully is, is in a way to treat his achievement disrespectfully. Yeah, I mean, they're a symbol of Starfleet. Maybe not as obvious as the Federation flag would be. You know, we think about um, national flags in mm-hmm. our world today and the respect that they, that they should have and they should be had and how people feel at signs of disrespect. And again, that can get into politics. I don't want to go there. But for Boimler, at least, these pips are symbolic, not just jewelry, like the woman said, they are mm-hmm, they're right. symbolic and, and important. And so, you know, it, maybe that's not the way he should have handled that. But I think you've explained why it is that he snaps like that. It's certainly understandable. Then there were the people who were doing this, who were the outpost scientists, and their attitudes to me were reminiscent of the Wrath of Khan. And you remember David Marcus complains about having to yes. be involved with yes. the military whenever we're with the military, blah, 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 blah. And I think Petra says similar things about Starfleet, doesn't she? She, she calls it a pseudo Navy that's violent. She seems to have, you know, similar thoughts about Starfleet. Yeah. Now, the Wrath of Khan was a century before Lower Decks, but there's, there are these feelings out there. It's obvious. And to a, a typical fan who uh, I presume thinks well of Starfleet, that's maybe a little surprising that there are some voices mm-hmm. like that yeah. out there. It's funny that the outpost scientists brag about being able to wear anything they want, but they're both dressed identically. <laughs> in criticizing Starfleet, these scientists are also giving into temptation to the little devils perched on their shoulders. It all does illustrate that the answers to these reflections about the ethics of the Mm. characters aren't always easy. And different people have very different views of what might be the best path. Right. I'd like to point out what I thought the theme or a theme of this episode was. And here's how I approached it. We've, We've got two plot lines, right? Of course, Rutherford finds out why his implant is malfunctioning. That's one. And the other, of course, is Boimler losing it at that Starfleet recruitment booth. What do these plot lines have in common? Well, Petra Aberdeen and the young Rutherford are both loners. Both of them criticize Starfleet. So Petra hates the bureaucracy and the violence. And young Rutherford hates Starfleet because they wouldn't let him test his own engines at the Academy. But... Old Rutherford wins the race thanks to his friends. 
And Mariner is tempted to forsake her friends to become one of these archaeologist guild loners. So I think maybe, you know, the episode is about the value of friendship, fellowship, and also being part of something noble, right? Uh, Young Rutherford and Petra, they're kind of sad to me because they're primarily, maybe exclusively pursuing their own interests. Petra is after this reward money. The young Rutherford just wants to make kick-ass ships, you know, get off his back. But Starfleet's, of course, not like that. It's something meaningful to the people who serve, as, of course, Boimler reminds us in his rampage on Tolgana 4. So that's where I approach this episode. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. A good thought. As we kind of move along and, and start looking to sum up the episode mm-hmm. and look ahead, I have, I have some thoughts here. We learned that the young Rutherford, the original Rutherford, was working on some sort of shadowy project for shadowy Starfleet folks. And there's an explosion. He's injured. And the bad guys essentially erase everything that has to do with the program. And so we are talking about a conspiracy, a cover-up and a conspiracy storyline here from the point of view of the producers and the writers. Now, my wife pointed out that the only people who conspire against Starfleet are male admirals. (laughs) That's right. And bugs. And bugs, yes. (laughs) I guess, we. I mean, we also have to add, but by now the Romulans are infiltrating Starfleet intelligence and they're doing that too, as we learned about in Picard. But if I could just comment, look, Stop falling for the Romulan masquerading as a Vulcan thing. Okay, you should (laughs) check all these apparent Vulcans out or something. It's an old trick. Stop falling for it. (laughs) Anyway, so there's one point where we see a list of admirals scrolled through on a pad. And there are male and female admirals, including Admiral Paris. And I sure hope it isn't him. You know, I'm sorry. Good feelings about Admiral Paris, Tom's dad. Oh, oh, okay. Who, who we saw in the last season of Voyager several times, but it probably wasn't the female admirals because the guy in charge of the silhouetted Starfleet folks was pretty clearly male. Yeah. It seemed to me that the conspirators did not create a completely new identity or mental framework for. Rutherford. It was just what was left when the project had been removed, and it ended up being his good side. Right. There was just a partial memory wipe. That's what I understood. Now, in fact, young Rutherford alleges that Rutherford, old Rutherford, erased his own memories. Of course, he may not know. On the other hand, the bad guys did program into Rutherford's memory that the implant was elective, mm-hmm. when in fact it wasn't, and its role is apparently to keep him from remembering. And that has now been circumvented because of that remember scene and and all that. I can see Rutherford, our Rutherford, maybe with his lower decks comrades, beginning some kind of quest to find out what the deal was and uncover the cover-up. And, you know, I mean, we've all seen on the internet sort of the poster for season three, and Rutherford is, is very prominent in that poster. So, you know, in support of what you're thinking about here, I I can see that being sort of the main story arc for this season. 
you know, it's going to be about Rutherford and, and uncovering this conspiracy or what have you. Or it again, it's seeds planted for a future storyline. I mean, we know that there are going to be more seasons of Lower Decks, mm-hmm. so they don't have to play everything out this season. Another True. thing that I think this episode is setting up is where we saw that Mariner did not delete the message from Petra. No. And I she think saved that, the contact. That's I think that could be setting something up too. Possibly. Absolutely. Possibly an end of season cliffhanger or some other return to that as as part of her story arc. And so maybe this time, remember, she has said that she has not liked to make friends because friends always leave her. Mm -hmm. And maybe maybe this time she's the one that leaves her friends at the end of a season or some other kind of cliffhanger. It would parallel Boimler leaving at the end of season one. And of course, Mm -hmm, he came back. But, okay, and Rodney, here's my rabbit hole of the week. Seems like in this Lower Deck season, I've been doing one of these each episode. Okay. Did you ever watch the TV series China Beach? No, I missed that. Uh, I do remember it airing, though. Yeah. It was a top-rated show in the late 1980s, and I think it extended into the early 90s. And essentially, it was part of the American catharsis over our experience in the Vietnam War. It was about the doctors and nurses caring for American soldiers wounded in battle in Vietnam. So in a way, you could say it was kind of a serious, very dramatic mash, Hmm. but it was not a comedy in any way. There was a two-part episode cliffhanger during China Beach in which the lead character, who's a triage nurse named Colleen McMurphy, She goes back home to Kansas on emergency leave because her father has had a heart attack. But then she goes AWOL because she just (laughs) can't stand the idea of going back to Vietnam to treat all of the terrible casualties that she's involved in. Understandable. Dana Delaney played McMurphy. Robert Picardo, by the way, was one of the cast members. He played a doctor. Now, in that storyline, McMurphy does end up going back because she is dragged along to visit um, probably a VA hospital and a disabled veteran who she had taken care of in Vietnam and recognized her, makes her realize that what she was doing was making a very important difference. Now, it's not the same situation as Mariner, but I have to say that this China Beach, you know, McMurphy's AWOL in America, was probably one of the most powerful somebody left cliffhangers I can ever remember. And Mm -hmm. the message in China Beach was that McMurphy being at China Beach, doing the medical triage was very important and very meaningful. And in a way that was kind of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Oh, right. Because she went back because she discovered the important role that people assigned to what she was doing. So, and there was just a place she needed to be. Did she feel as if she in a way had abandoned the people back there that she was helping? Maybe sort of. I mean, this in the context of her being AWOL, this played out over just a few days. I don't remember if she got in trouble for it or not or, or, or whatever, but she made that decision as much as she didn't really want to, that she had yeah. to go back because it was a place she needed to be. And, you know, this idea of place connected to a fictional character can be very important. Several years ago, I wrote a book chapter in a scholarly book about Firefly. And in that chapter I wrote, I found that pretty much every character in Firefly had a signature place. 
Sometimes it was a physical place. Sometimes it was a little more spiritual. But for example, in Hmm. Firefly, Kaylee's place is the engine room. She's in other places sometimes, but that's her place. Wash's place is on whatever they call it in a mid-bulk transport ship, the bridge or the control room. That's Wash's place. He's the pilot and he sits at the pilot controls. He's other places, does other things, but that is her place. And I think Mariner is still trying to figure out her place. She believes in the mission of Starfleet, but she knows she's not fitting in. She's not fitting in yet. She's trying to find her place both intellectually and spiritually and probably physically too. I would note that to me, she seems to be an an adrenaline junkie, Mm -hmm. which is why she gets so bored on any of the ordinary assignments, even if they're not really so bad or if they're very appropriate for an ensign to do. But I think that deep down, Mariner isn't sure that she can live up to what Ransom wants of her. And he's the person that makes the big difference right now. Even though there's this chance that she could be transferred to Starbase 80. Oh, yuck, that would be terrible. Yeah. The practical reality, and we've had heard this said explicitly before, that Cerritos is her last chance to remain in Starfleet. And she keeps saying she really wants to stay in Starfleet, but so often she can't stand what Starfleet expects of her. And as I'm speaking, it occurs to me that Mariner also is one of these people that has two inner voices, the angel and the devil sitting on her shoulders. One wants her to toe the line and really be an excellent officer. The other, right now, is wanting her to scrap the whole idea and go rogue permanently. So that independent archaeologist, Petra Aberdeen, personifies that little devil sitting on Mariner's shoulder, devaluing what she's doing in the recruiting booth, and then making that final, if you ever, offer. So the the little devil and maybe Mariner's little angels are all three of the other ensigns because they all seem to like what they're doing and enjoy what they're doing. And Mariner is struggling to find her balance among all of these different voices, which are really voices inside of her, even though other people, for purposes of drama and fiction, personify it. Right. And those three ensigns are her friends now. I think she's finally letting them in and, and showing yeah. some vulnerability. And so that's definitely, if there's voice keeping her in Starfleet, those are three of them. <laughs> now, you know, we've, so. we've talked before about Mariner's character development arc, where it started, where it is now, where mm-hmm. it may go in the future. And I think what we've just talked about here is consistent with what we've said before, with our understanding of her. But yeah, um, I think so. You know, this episode particularly gives us more insight as to where she is right now and at least uh, uh, spurs more guesses as to where she might be going. And it would not surprise me to see her try that experiment of going off with Petra. Um, Oh yeah. I, after having this discussion, it seems almost inevitable that it's going to happen. And it really makes me wonder how Mariner's going to figure this out. I, I really don't know how these two, these voices in her head are going to compromise or which one is going to win and, or how that's going to happen. It's, you know, I'm looking forward to finding out though. Yeah. And I, I don't expect it to be this season. This is an animated series. This will go on for many years. Yeah. Animated series today's are really expensive. This is not like, you know, 50 years ago, animation was an inexpensive way to, to do stories and things. 
So I, I have no idea what the budget is, but these are expensive episodes to produce, even though they're a half hour animated. And that will be part of the dynamic in deciding how many seasons Lower Decks gets. But I think we're pretty sure there's one more after this one. Mm-hmm. And two or three more wouldn't surprise me. So I, I think ultimately this the resolution of Mariner's storyline, maybe even Rutherford's, will be near the end of whatever ends up being the final season. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And we'll be here to watch it. And, That's the plan. That's and, the plan uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. So we'd like to thank you for joining us, of course. Uh, watch for announcements on our Twitter feed. That's at Trek underscore Academy. And remember that our website is anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. You can listen there or find links to subscribe your podcatching app. So thank you for being here and we'll see you next time for episode six of Star Trek Lower Decks season three.